Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 24. Please open to Luke 24. We'll pick up at verse 36. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So you remember that last last time that Jesus had been speaking, he had been going along, he had been supping with... uh, those two men in Emmaus. And remember that it is it's still hours after his resurrection. The day of his resurrection, there's been a flurry of activity. As soon as, and you also remember that, as soon as these men recognized Jesus as he was breaking bread, uh, he vanished from their sight. Where did he go? Well, we find out that Jesus went ahead of these men going to Jerusalem to be with the eleven and those who were with him. So Jesus, it appears, vanished from the sight of the men in Emmaus and then appeared suddenly among the, the, the eleven, the apostles and the others in Jerusalem. Now these appearances after his resurrection are coming to an end. They're, they're going to come to an end. Jesus will ascend, you know, to the right hand of the Father, and um, which we'll look at next time. And the Holy Spirit will be sent. Uh, but here in this uh, record in Luke, we see the Son of God uh, dispensing grace to his followers. 
He gives them peace. He gives them confidence. He gives them illumination. And he gives them orders. He gives them something to do. Uh, when he appears in that room with those unbelieving, their, their unbelieving and grieving apostles, right, on a certain level, his unbelieving, grieving apostles and followers, the first words from his mouth are, peace be with you. Peace. Now, we, we could read this as just a common greeting, you know, along the lines of, of the Jewish shalom. You know, peace, peace to you. Um, but given their coming at, at these and during these few appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, I think we need to give them more weight than just a common greeting. Peace is indeed what Jesus Christ's recent uh, crucifixion, his death, has brought to all these people, right? To his followers. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18 teaches us that Jesus came and preached peace, but also this, Jesus is our peace, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he, in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Access to the Father. Access to the angry, just Father. Right. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's encapsulating the effect of, of all of that recent work that he's done. You will often hear me mention uh, the peace we have with God through our prayers, that, that glorious peace that exists now between us and the Father because of Jesus Christ. Right? But remember, it's undoubtedly true even though the church and her officers never say so today, that God is a God of wrath. God is wrathful. God is a God of wrath. And that is an eternal wrath. So, so clear is this that Scripture describes the receptacle of God's wrath as a wine press, a place of violence and blood and tearing, and pressure, right, and crushing, a wine press. And for any sinner, and all men have sinned, the amazing inter intercession of Jesus Christ that, that he would propitiate his wrathful Father by death on the cross, well, that is ridiculous glory. It's stupendous glory. Right? To know that kind of peace, to know that kind of deep peace is, is wonderful. But you can't know it 
if you believe a caricature of God, that he does not care about sin and his son's death, you know, if you view that as merely a, a trial meant to show us how to act in the face of oppression, rather than what it was, a redemptive, propitiatory agony, a substitution for the punishment that you deserve. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, you should get goosebumps. Should just, it should just hit you. Perhaps it would be better to translate this, peace is with you. And that the peace has actually been made between these men and Almighty God. Jesus is our peace. Next, in our text in Luke, we see that the, the disciples, they're, um, they're startled. Frightens. They um, they they think that there's a spirit in their midst. Um, no doubt, that's the appropriate reaction when someone suddenly appears in the room with you, right? And and um, this is a closed door gathering, and there's Jesus. Jesus asks them questions. Questions meant to point out. Um, not their fear because of his appearing, but their unbelief since his death. Right? So he leaves the fear off. It's, it's, he, he, what, he, what he begins questioning about is um, their understanding of recent events. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Again, this is the question because many have now been testifying to them about Jesus being alive. Right? Many have come to them and said, look, Jesus is alive. And they're like, eh, what? Um, so what does Jesus point to to convince them of his resurrection? Points to his body. He points to his body. Then he gives them convincing proof that it is a real body, not merely a spirit without flesh. He says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. In other words, look at the healed wounds, the stigmata. Look at me. You can't miss this. Look at the healed wounds that mark the fact that, that he was crucified. Hendrickson remarks, it is impossible for us who do not yet possess the resurrection body to understand how it was possible for the body of Jesus to be, on the one hand, so unlike our present bodies that he was able to enter a room without opening either a door or a window, yet, on the other hand, so similar to our present bodies that the very scars resulting from his crucifixion were still showing. Resurrection body, some sort of difference, but the same. Okay, then Jesus says, well, don't just take my word for it. I'm testifying. Your eyes are seeing. Um, but now touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Flesh and bones. So once again, let me remind you about how everybody today is denying the importance and the place of the body. 
today. Our Savior took on flesh in his incarnation. He rose again from death bodily. In our modern-day pagan religion that, that was celebrated a few days ago in the Women's March denies the place and the respect of the body. Such, such is always the fruit of denying God as creator of everything visible. It makes the body and the plumbing, the biology, something arbitrary and, and to be overcome. So along comes transgenderism. But the Christian faith will continue to maintain what it has all along, that uh, the body given you is for the purposes outlined in the word of God. God gave you a body, and in that body you will spend the rest of eternity. Just as the body Jesus was born with is the body he has now. Though transformed, renewed in his resurrection, he will have that body eternally. Much disobedience, much agony comes in rejecting the importance and reality of the body. Uh, Flesh and bones, Jesus said. Flesh and bones. So, children, children, don't believe the lies of the pagan religion of our nation. God made you and gave you the particular flesh you have for a purpose. If a woman for the purposes of womanhood laid out in Scripture, if a man for the purposes of manhood laid out in Scripture, so live accordingly and do not give opportunity for pagans to devour you and get you to dishonor the Word of God. To drive this point home, Jesus shows him his hands and feet. And while they're still amazed and stupefied, he asks them for something to eat. You guys got something to eat? Now notice notice the passage says, while they still could not believe it because of joy and amazement says they could not believe it because they were just, woo, amazed. Just like they, their mind was reeling, and, and it's joy, but it's like crazy joy, crazy amazement. It appears their emotions are getting in the way of faith, right? They did not believe because of the, the joy and amazement that they were experiencing. And Calvin picks this up, as Calvin is, is, is good at doing and reminding us of who we are. He says, this passage shows also that they were not purposely unbelieving like persons who deliberately resolve not to believe. They weren't purposely unbelieving at this point. But while their will led them to believe eagerly, they were held bound by their vehemence, the intensity of their feelings, so that they could not rest satisfied. For certainly the joy which Luke mentions arose from nothing but faith, and yet it hindered their faith from gaining the victory. Let us therefore observe with what suspicion we ought to regard the intensity of our feelings, which though it may have good beginnings, hurries us out of the right path. Right? 
it's a good response in that it's showing some faith, some excitement, some amazing. But if it continues on, the emotions drag us places, right? The emotions drag us places where we shouldn't go. Even if it's joy, joy can get carried away. You ever gotten carried away with your joy? Left behind godliness? Of course you have. And so any, you know, it's always good for for us feelers um, to be reminded not to think not to think that all you feel is godly. Uh, back to the scene. Have you anything here to eat? I mean, it's it's ridiculously um, mundane, isn't it? You guys have something to eat. They do, and they give it to them, right? Perhaps still thinking that they have never seen a spirit eat, and if a spirit eats, when he puts it in his mouth, it's just simply going to drop to the floor. But that's not what happens. He takes the fish, he eats it, and all of it is perfectly ordinary. He takes the fish, he asks them if they have fish, they give them some food, they give him fish, he eats it, he swallows it goes on. <laughs> um, I mean, but think about this. This is not just a man showing that he can chew and digest. This is the eternal Son of God condescending to, to giddy, giddy apostles that he has flesh and bones. It's the eternal Son of God doing something so simple so that they might have faith in Him. It's, um, again, Calvin says, during the whole course of his life, he had subjected himself to the necessity of eating and drinking, and now, though he's relieved from that necessity, he eats for the purpose of convincing his disciples of the certainty of his resurrection. Right? He eats so that they might believe he rose bodily from the dead. Now, verse 44, we, we turn to this exhortation he gives to those disciples that are gathered around him. He once again tells them that the Old Testament prophets, um, they prophesied of the events that have recently taken place. We covered that last time. That he suffered and died was predicted there. It was written about in the law, the prophets, the Psalms all of which I cited last week. Um, Then note what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, we've already talked about that earlier as, as we marveled at the apostles' unwillingness to believe the testimony of the women who met Jesus after his death. But think about this for a moment. So many people think that when... when the Spirit comes to them... That makes the word less useful to them. When the Spirit comes to them, that makes the word less useful to them. No, the Spirit works with the word. And when the Spirit regenerates us, he makes it so that we learn by understanding the scriptures. Right? And so this is, this is normal. It's not like, okay... Um, once the Spirit is poured out in, in Acts chapter 2, then this time period of understanding the Scriptures came to an end because they had the Spirit's 
the Spirit's revelation to them directly. No, the Spirit works along with the Word. And that's why it says here He gave them understanding of the Scriptures. They would carry this along with them as they went out and preached the Gospel, as they preached the Word. Right? So many people want to dispense with the Scriptures so that they can do what? So they can claim a private revelation from the Spirit. And that is how heresies develop. After he illumines their mind, opens up their understanding, he gives and, and gives them a, a, a deeper faith. He says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus' summary of what they have witnessed in the recent events and the previous three years consists of two things: his death and resurrection. And that, of course, is foundational doctrine, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the other part, so his death and resurrection and his work of preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin proclaimed in his name. Uh, and the scope of all that work is to all the nations starting in Jerusalem, right? So... So examine yourself according to those two principles. Do you understand the fullness of the death of Jesus Christ and believe that he rose after his death? Children, do you believe that Jesus rose after his death? In understanding that, you understand then that repentance is a necessary part of salvation. But do you understand that repentance is a necessary part of the remainder of your Christian life? Death, resurrection, and then preaching repentance in his name. Repentance is a necessary part of the rest of your life. You will sin and repent until you die. And is this the content of your witness to others? Is that the content of your witness to others? Jesus died and rose, and you must believe it, and you must repent. <laughs> is that our witness? I mean, that certainly does not represent the complexity of our evangelism and apologetics today, does it? I mean, I don't have any problem answering people's objections, refuting those who contradict we need answers concerning science. We need answers concerning evolution and philosophy and epistemology. But if we never get around to this, Jesus died and rose, and you have to repent, well, then we've not preached the gospel. We've simply answered objections and not driven for the faith that comes from hearing the word and, and the spirit illumining the mind. Right? Better to know the scriptures for your witness than to know uh, anything else or everything else. Better to know the scriptures for your witness. 
right? The goal is for God to use you as a means to help people deal with the groaning weight of sin, not their intellectual objections. You know, the sad, what we all know is that sad intensity of a guilty conscience. The, the, The burden you wake up to in the morning. That guilty conscience. Intellectual arguments don't go that deep. In other words, it's impossible to lead someone to Jesus Christ without teaching them uh, not merely about sin and about Jesus and about repentance, but specifically their sin, their repentance, their faith in the saving grace of a crucified and risen Savior. But when the order of the day is niceness, it's very hard for people to receive any negativity about their behavior, their current beliefs, their outlook on life. It's just very, very hard. And so the pride, you know, but but that's nothing new. The apostles, Jesus himself, faced the same pride of man that we face today. Pride of man refuses to give thanks to God and refuses to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him because they love and serve their own pleasures, their own sins, rather than serving their creator. Now, this is not merely, and this is where our minds go, this is not merely the the sexually perverse person that lives near you. This is your unbelieving grandmother. Right, whose sins seem insignificant, but who does not, will not, give glory to Jesus Christ. Civility is insufficient for salvation. So don't, you know, don't let the civilized sinner escape your witness. Don't think that that person's sins are so small that they really don't need to repent. That's our temptation. I mean, we're also just looking for a way to get out of our duty, right? But don't let the civilized sinner escape your witness. Being not far from the kingdom of God is still not enough to save a man from hell. You have to be in the kingdom of God. Now, finally, in the passage, they're, giving their march, they're, they're given marching orders, right? You are witnesses. You're witnesses of what has happened. And it's hurry up and wait. It's hurry up and wait. You will go out preaching to all the nations, but you must not go before it's time. Don't think you can get ahead of me in this. You must wait for what? For the power, uh, for the powerful God to give you power. Look at, look at that statement he says, though. I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Sending forth the promise of my Father on you. Well, what is he talking about? The phrase is explained to us in Luke's next book in, at the beginning of, of Acts. Uh, 1, 3 through 5, it says this, to these, to these gathered here, these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, 
which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And then John 14, 26, you remember, picks, it, it says the same thing. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit being given to them. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the glorious triune God, is promised by the Father and sent by the Father and the Son. And his power is going to be over the top. And, and, and most significantly, you know, it's, it's not going to be demonstrated in the speaking of tongues, in, in handkerchiefs that, that heal. It's going to be demonstrated in the fact that a sinful man can preach and 3,000 can be converted in one day. The power of the Holy Spirit through the proclaiming of the word through the apostles. Think of the conversions taking place by means of the word preached. And so don't get don't get hung up on on those those miracles and speaking in tongues. Think of the conversion of both Jews and Gentiles of all the nations. And then the last thing here is they're told to wait. They're told to wait. They were not to do what those men of Israel did after spying out the land. You remember that? To, um, to go into a situation in the exact manner that God has told you not to is to welcome defeat. To, do, to go into it, even though you know he's going to send you, to go into it in a manner that God doesn't lay out is to welcome defeat and attempt to work God's work without God. Um, Numbers 14, when Moses spoke these words, this is after the spies return and they've worked through all that. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to take the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and they and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. And they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, right? And so they go up. No, 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 it's time, it's time. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. They were not to go out. They would not have been ready to preach the word. They would not have been ready to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ because the Spirit had not come upon them for that task. And they would have been defeated. They would, have been, um, they would not have been successful. You know, had the outpouring of the Spirit not been upon these men, the results would have been exactly what they were for the Israelites um, at that time. The apostles likely would have gone out preaching what? 
They would have gone out preaching themselves like pulpiteers and lacked all godly courage. Instead, with boldness, they took on the Sanhedrin. They took on Rome. They took on idolatrous cities that were breathing threats against them. But that was not these mere men. That was the Holy Spirit in these men. And that's what it required. So they could not get ahead of the commandments of God. They had to wait and then see the power of God come upon them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh Lord, I pray that any here this morning who are doubting that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was flesh and bones, that you would open their minds by your spirit to understand your scripture. And that they would repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And rejoice. Rejoice that they know you. Rejoice that they can, for the first time, thank their creator. For the glorious blessings that come through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we have a redeemer, a king, a lord that lisped to us by eating fish so that we might believe in his resurrection. Thank you for that kindness to us because we are uh, we do not have eternal wisdom by nature. We need your spirit. We thank you for Jesus and his kindness, his love, his willingness to explain to us all that is necessary to believe in order to be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.